Audio conversation with Brad Steiger recorded Friday, January 10th, 2014. I'm looking at my calendar right now, and it has been over two months since I did my last audio interview. I apologize to any listeners out there who are hungry for more. Um, Life being what it is, uh, sometime invades, and I just haven't been able to get to any. I have a bunch of folks all set up, ready to go. They've said yes, and uh, I just I just haven't had the, the, the wherewithal to do any kind of follow-up and get right down and to do an audio interview. Um, this has been wonderful. I feel great. I feel like I've missed it, and I'm happy that I did this interview with Brad here. And it's just a nice feeling knowing that I'm uh, that I'm doing these again because these these interviews mean a lot to me, and I say that over and over, and I really mean it. They mean a lot to me. And this audio interview with Brad was remarkable. I'm really impressed. Now, uh, if anyone does not know who Brad Steiger is, uh, this guy has written seemingly, good grief, I want to say a thousand. That's probably exaggerating, but uh, many hundreds of books at this point on exactly the subjects and the topics that uh, this website makes an effort to explore. Brad and his wife, Sherry, have just published a new book, and he's now promoting that book. And the title of the book here in front of me, Real Encounters, Different Dimensions, and Otherworldly Beings by Brad Steiger and Sherry Hansen-Steiger, his wife. We do talk about this book a great deal in the interview, uh, though we certainly stray from the topics of this book. This is a big, giant, fat book. Uh, this ain't uh, a little dinky paperback. There's a lot going on in this book, a lot of reports, uh, one after another after another, and many of them are from either Brad or his wife Sherry talking about uh, ghost sightings, near-death experiences, UFO sightings, uh, sightings of odd entities. It's very interesting how much both Brad and Sherry will share about their own experiences. Now, my last audio interview with Brad, I've only done one other interview with him, took place in the summer of 2011. And I want to direct you to that uh, that interview. These would make really good side-by-side two-part interviews. So instead of a one-hour interview, in essence, you have a two-hour interview, though they're separated by uh, over two years. I feel pretty confident they'll flow right together. It doesn't matter what order you listen to these two interviews in. Uh, they, they, should, they should make a nice companion pair. And I also want to give a heads-up to you, the listeners, that... Um, there was a really mystical side of Brad that emerged. Uh, right at the very beginning, we get right into it, or let me say he gets right into it, and uh, talks about a recent dream, and he calls it a vivid dream. Anyone, anytime anyone says the word vivid dream, that implies something more to me. Uh, he said he had a vivid dream involving uh, basically reliving a UFO sighting he had in 1967. And the, the implications and his own reflections are, are really, really interesting. I consider Brad Steiger a national treasure. This interview is right around one hour. Please enjoy. Hey, Brad, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Oh, it's great to be back uh, talking to you, Mike. It's been a while. It has been uh, two and a half years. It was the summer of 2011, the last time we spoke. When we talked before, uh, we were focused on the book um, Real Aliens, Space Beings, and Creatures from Other Worlds Mm -hmm. by you and your wife, Sherry. Yes. And now we're talking about another book, Real Encounters, Different Dimensions, and Otherworldly Beings. And these... These books are laid out the same. They're the same format. They're about the same thickness. They make really nice companion books. Thank uh, you. And um, so I'm going to treat this interview, hopefully, as a really nice companion interview to, to what we did uh, before. And, and uh, there's a similar tone to these books. And I, and I listen to our interview just as prepping for what we're doing now. And I'll be cautious not to repeat uh, the same things. So hopefully... Anyone who stumbles on this can, with a few mouse clicks, can listen to two hours of, of us talking together. That sounds fine. That sounds very good. Good plan. Good, good. Hey, um, 
the focus of these interviews that I do is usually the UFO abduction lore. Mm-hmm. Now, what I've found as I immerse myself into my own research and, and uh, trying to make sense of this stuff is that that definition is too confining. You know, UFOs, actually UFOs is almost too confining. There's The more I dig into it, the more blurry everything gets and the more <laughs> overlapping things get. It seems like there's a, the UFO thing seems to rub shoulders with psychic awareness and angels and all kinds of other paranormal stuff. And I think this book reflects that. And, and, and I, I assume that you've, you're, well, I'm having just read your book, I know full well that you've tapped into that yourself. Is it difficult to stay on target in this stuff because there's so much overlap? Very, very. Now, it was so much easier 50 years ago uh, when everything seemed so clear. We're having visitors from outer space. They're here, they're here. Hooray, hooray. And we were all at that time very much nuts and bolts. And we were waiting. I mean, there we had Roswell. I was, you know, 11 years old on Roswell. So I just came right into the whole field and and started collecting information then. So my first book, um, uh, Strangers from the Skies, which everyone was singing to the tune of Strangers in the Night, but at <laughs> it became a bestseller in, in two weeks, Mike. I mean, because it was just hitting in 1967, the pulse of people were becoming really interested in what's going on. Now, in that book, too, it's very much nuts and bolts. But then the more I got into it, I thought, you know, I'm talking to contactees all over the United States. And that's the time before Internet, before email. So if you talk to someone in Ohio and they gave you the message that the entities gave them, the euphonauts, if you will, and then you talk to someone in Canada, Montreal or wherever, and they give you the same message, you think, now, these people don't know each other. There weren't the television shows and the interview shows and the radio shows then. And you start to thinking, now, what is really going on? Is it like the great cosmic photograph in the sky that's giving these same messages? And then the more I got into it and working with contactees, I thought, you know, this is where I began. I began psychical researcher going to spiritualist camps, talking to mediums, talking to their guides, who gave the same messages and the same kind of sermonettes that now allegedly these space brothers and sisters. So it became very murky for me in the early 70s. But again, it was still kind of the dogma at that time that they're from outer space and they're working in their bases and so forth. And I had a number of personal experiences that seemed to correlate with that. Now, as I look back, I I wonder, and it's the same way um, with many, many researchers. Uh, Sherry and I have talked so often about the evolution that we went through and how we saw everything blending. And this book is, as you've noticed, Mike, we have more of our personal experiences in this book than any other. We felt it was time to reveal how we've become involved personally with whatever. So we've come to accept, you know, that there is some external intelligence throughout history that's been interacting with our species, either to communicate certain basic truths, to learn more about us, or to guide us. And then some people take the negative stance and, and describe you know, terrible medical experiments on board craft and abductions and so forth. And I think, and again, this is not being accusative toward anyone, but I think we discover that how you react to the experience tells a great deal about yourself. In other words, who you are, in one sense, is kind of what you get. And we see that, now you mentioned uh, in an email that you'd kind of like to 
link everything to the UFO. And as Sherry and I were discussing last night, we really feel that all of these experiences are somehow linked to what we call now the UFO mystery. That's not saying they come from outer space. We're not saying there isn't intelligent life in outer space. We just think that the UFO enigma that we've been dealing with all these years, all these centuries, maybe before we came upright as a species, has to do with an intelligence that is somehow interacting with us, sometimes teaching us, sometimes guiding us, but always, when we stop to analyze it, it's confusing us. It is so challenging. It is so murky. It is so challenging. Yes. And now, you said something there. It, it, you said um, you had a personal experience, and uh, it correlated with something. Now, it's, was, were you hinting that your personal experience was, was uh, matched what would be the nuts and bolts type event? Yeah, because... And, and, and I'm just, and um, I'm just going to write an article on this. I'll send you a copy, because I just, I, I had a, a very vivid dream a few nights ago, in which I was reliving an experience, in which at the time seemed totally convincing that there was, they were being visited from outer space by these incredible craft. Now, as I re-examine it, I'm thinking, come on, that's just too much to show a person. It, it, it was like it was choreographed, Mike. It was like it was directed. I'll just tell briefly the situation. Uh, it was on the Mississippi River, and a friend and myself saw what we thought by their incredible activity, had to be UFOs. Okay, now this is 1967. That's important to remember. This is a year after my book, Strangers in the Skies, about UFOs, was a paperback bestseller within two weeks of publication. So I'm, I'm really, you know, into they're here, they're here. So as we watched a UFO seemed to be rising. I, I went to a place I had taught in Clinton, Iowa, which is on the Mississippi. And while I was a teacher there, I would find a place to plink, to target practice and so forth, away from everything. So I said, well, let's go there. We won't have the lights of the city to bother us because we spotted these. So we're looking at craft seemingly maybe um, 500 yards away, rising from the forest area there, the woods area, go up, up into the sky, and then three or four similar objects met it. It was then joined by another one coming up from the ground, from the forest, the woods, and they began shooting jagged streaks of lightning, it appeared, at one another. And we said, you know, are they refueling? Are they shooting each other? What are they doing? And we're just with our eyes agape. Now, my friend was a professional photographer and author for a number of magazines. He was interested in UFOs only because I had told him about UFOs. So he had no vested interest. And we're just looking with our eyes wide open as we see what appears to be, you know, a battle going on in the skies. And every once in a while, one would, in the classic falling leaf motion, go down to the ground, as if it were wounded, quote unquote, or it had been damaged. And we watched this for probably the better part of an hour before they seemed to then streak off at a great rate of speed. Now, I was reflecting on that. That's just too much. I mean, and why, you know, out of a billion people in, the, you know, in that area, why, why would we get this incredible light show? So I'm, I'm thinking so often, Mike, and I ha we have a chapter in, in the book, uh, the Real Encounters book we're talking about tonight, called The Magic Theater. 
so often this seems like we are participants in a magic theater. Now, I look back, was all that just created for me? Because I was just getting in, I'd just written this book about UFOs to keep me intrigued, but also to convince me this was no craft, this was from USA, this was no experimental vehicles, these were craft from outer space to be able to do these incredible things. I've reflected now the last <laughs> week. What did I really see and why did I see it? And, you know, it's egotistical to say this was for me. What was this? I mean, here you talk about getting murky, my friend. There are so many instances that people have described when they really look back on it, or I look back on it, I look through some of the cases that I wrote about for Saga Magazine or, or whomever for a book in those days. And some people had what seemed to be choreographed, personally choreographed or personally directed for them. You know, the magic theater. People who had encounters. I've talked, you know, I had a remarkable interview with some college students who started uh, seeing things in the sky, and pretty soon the dorm was being tossed apart, and their lives, they were believed they were followed by hooded beings and so forth. Do Are we, on some level, invited to participate in this kind of weird, magic, cosmic theater? Oh my gosh, you're you're checking off all these things on my list in a way. Uh, there is something... Th- from my own experiences, from a lot of people I've talked to, it's there is a very personal presentation, and the word theatrical is perfect, uh, where it feels like things are presented to people, and I have example after mm-hmm. example where they're presented exactly to meet that person, exactly to meet their own whatever, their own concerns, yeah. their idiosyncrasies. Yeah, it, so... What you're what you're saying doesn't surprise me. Now this all emerged. This what you're saying. You felt this. You've been. This has been on your mind for the last week. After what you refer to as a very vivid dream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I saw. I was there again, seeing it. And this time, you know, dream within a dream. I, I know. I, I've I've followed your <laughs> your quote unquote career. You know, as the best I can. And I know that you are an extremely sensitive and open person. So I'm sure you've had that experience of seeing a dream within a dream. And in this case, one part of myself was saying, now just look at this objectively. You looked at it at the time in 1967 as some kind of proof that there are UFOs coming from outer space. But then shortly after that, when you began hearing so many stories that seemed and made you incredulous about this and started to go back to psychic phenomena, go back to the paranormal, and again, with uh, the books, um, Gods of Aquarius and so forth in the early 70s, Mysteries of Time and Space, I began to blend the two. Now, some people, you know, said, hey, I think you're onto something. But at that time, the majority said, you know, you're nuts. I mean, you're, you're really getting weird, Steiger. You know, stick with the outer space theme. But I could no longer do that from that time. I began incorporating and saying, this is much bigger. <laughs> I mean, okay. It's big if someone from outer space lands on the White House lawns and says we are from wherever. That's big. But it's not as big as saying that here is a mechanism that may have been guiding our evolution for centuries. Maybe in one weird sense, eerie sense, it says Charles Fort said, we are property. There is a close friend of mine, he has since died, his name was Mac Tonys, and mm-hmm. he, would, he would quote that uh, Charles Fort, you know, we are property, <laughs> and then he would add at the end, yes, but we might be very important property. Right. So, right. They're, uh, pri- they're price crop. <laughs> there, there seems to be an interaction, they seem to be here for a reason, there seems to be something going on rather than just, you know, toying with us, you know, like, I mean, uh, you know, it's, you can play with a dog and that goes a certain way. Right. Right. And, but this seems to be somehow directed, you use the term evolution, which is as good a term as any, it's somehow directed. It has, uh, I, I I constantly go back. uh, I'm not really a very good student of Greek mythology, but I, but I basically say, you know, the, the, the UFO occupants, uh, used to wear togas and live on Mount Olympus, 
Right. And now they wear shiny one-piece spacesuits and live in mm-hmm. flying saucers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That may and be simplistic, we, but yeah. yeah and it, no, no, it's not simplistic. If you look at history, uh, and everyone, I mean, come on. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, among three other majors. I was also a history major because my passion when I went to college was to write historical novels. So I convinced the... Um, the uh, <laughs> the history department, because I was going to leave after my sophomore years, if I could get my history master's in two years instead of the four. And and I guess in a moment of weakness, they agreed. So I was cramming history. And then I thought, well, I really want to be a writer. So then I switched over to English. At the same time, I had psychology and sociology and so forth. So I can see that all prepared me. But history is always written from his story, a point of view. We have tried, for example, in our conspiracies and secret societies to be totally objective. We have no agenda at all in that book. We're just presenting the facts and the evidence. And we had an excellent editor at that time who made us, even if we began to shade a subjectivity, a particular point of view would jump on us. But that's very hard. So if you're writing a history of uh, Appomattox, uh, Gettysburg, or World War II, or Iwo Jima, I think it's impossible not to have a point of view. And most scholars would or, or would argue, unless you have a point of view, you're ineffective as a scholar. But you see how having a point of view in anthropology, archaeology, has tilted us all toward the way that gets you tenure in college. My books, uh, Worlds Before Our Own, and uh, Mysteries of Time and Space, in which I dealt into, um, particular in Worlds Before Our Own, I made a prediction then that it'd be more than Homo sapiens, be more than Neanderthal, that at least five species would, in the next few years, reveal themselves, and and that's what we've done now. We have the Denisovans, we have the Hobbits, the Forensis. We uh, keep adding: Are they individual species, or are they like? I mean, come on, we have the Zulu, and we have the Maasai, seven feet tall, and then in the just a little ways around the block, we have the pygmies, you know, three and probably at the most four feet tall. They're not a separate species. They're just a variation of a species. So we are just beginning, really, to understand who we are. We have operated for centuries with a false idea of who we really are. And the overwhelming compulsion of every serious researcher in this field, I think, has been to answer the question, who are we? A friend of mine and I would have these discussions, and I mean, any thinking person talking about UFOs, very quickly in the discussion, it seems to go to, like, the, the big questions. Is there a God? Why are we here? What does mm-hmm. this all mean? Mm-hmm. And right. that is, the, to me, that those questions are... are intertwined with the UFO mystery, and I can't separate them. Inexplicably intertwined, Sherry and I would say. Yeah. Inexplicably, totally, completely, without question, intertwined. So, um, uh, Not everyone will agree with us, of course, Mike. I know some people who would not agree, and, uh, and, <laughs> and, um, and they're actually, those folks are doing, I mean, those people are within the UFO community, and those people are doing good research. They're bringing important puzzle pieces to the, to the, uh, to the table, um, uh, though, you know, like, I'm not that interested in, the, in certain aspects of the research, you know, the, the straight-up nuts-and-bolts stuff. You know, I've never called an airport and asked if they have a radar sighting, for instance, because that's really mm-hmm. not where my heart is, so. Right, um, right. Now, uh, I spoke with one abduction researcher, and she uh, has a very nuts and bolts mindset, which I, I, I get. And mm-hmm. and I'll say mm-hmm. things like, you know, well, they, you know, they could be coming from other dimensions, and she'll, ooh, she'll just interrupt me and she'll go, Mike, right? That term, other dimensions, nobody really knows what that means. Mm-hmm. And then she'll chide me a little bit, and basically saying like, like, because you can't really define it, 
you can't use it. You can't. It's like lazy. It's a it's a term of laziness saying other dimensions. Right. And uh, and then I just want to say you oh you say different dimensions on the cover of your book. But um so what's your take on that? How would you respond to that? Well, I think you know. Um, it was so easy to say that in the '60s, and and it was a fashionable. And it was David Gear to say that in the 60s. But now as we learn more, and science is learning more, and we have scientists talking about other dimensions. We have scientists talking about planes of reality. We have scientists talking in the various aspects of quantum physics. We have them talking about nine different planes of reality. Uh, we subscribe to a number of scientific publications, and I was amazed when I picked up um, a copy of New Scientist not long ago. And, and the opening sentence is, uh, while you were having breakfast this morning, another you in another dimension was probably having a different breakfast. Now, that's in a scientific magazine, and it went on to talk about different dimensions of reality and different planes of being. So we have this theoretically and yes, perhaps this is theoretically, but what do we really know? What, what are dreams? Scientists cannot answer what is consciousness. Now, again, in these publications of things that are yet to be explained, and it, it's almost as if they're gritting their teeth when they say, we still don't know what consciousness is. We still can't really know what gravity is. Certainly, we know if we drop something, it falls. And they, they talk about gravity, of course, keeping all the planets so forth apart on their various orbits. But no one really knows what gravity is. What is this force that we talk about so blithely? It's like electricity. We all use it. We can define its uses. We can define numerous ways it serves us every second of every day, but how do we really know how it travels from the dam to our, our living room so we can watch uh, a television show to relax? All these are still mysteries that just because we can explain them, that doesn't mean we can really defer, excuse me, explain their uses and define their uses, we don't really know what they are. We're, we're dealing with our subjective evaluation of what we think it is, but these are still, for lack of a better term, these are miracles and wonders. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that there's also, you know, we don't have, well, it's hard to, to create a practical definition of what... Uh, different dimension might mean but we but we have it all throughout our folklore including i mean i just saw this movie um recently which i loved here comes mr jordan where there's there's uh you must yeah. be familiar with that with um oh, yeah. Claude Rains. yeah so there's like there's a right it's, i saw it when it was first out yeah it's, it's perfect it's perfect there's there's uh you know actually players on a stage there's no special effects at all i mean maybe some simple very simple special effects but uh maybe a little smoke, maybe a little smoke now and then yeah exactly you know and but uh there's a ghost and there's an angel and they're interacting with people and some people can see the ghost but they can't see the angel and it is it's completely understood by everyone in the audience it doesn't take anything right. to get what's no. going on and so there's an example of like a different dimension in essence that is interacting with ours and it's played out as the most wonderful popular form of entertainment so we have it in our in our marrow i guess in our bones we right. have the knowledge right. of what a different dimension is it may not it might be very difficult to to write in a theoretical you know paper but um hey in this book there is actually a lot about the near death experience mm -hmm. and i was really impressed that both you and Sherry shared so much of your personal experiences, including the near-death experience. I didn't realize that, that, uh, that your wife had had so much, I mean, had had more than one near-death experience. That to me right. is fascinating. Now, it's fascinating for, for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is the, the work you're doing now. You know, I, t does that trace back to what might be your own experiences, even in your youth, of being on that other side somehow. Yeah, I, I think it very definitely does for both of us. 
And you talk about a different dimension or another dimension, and you see uh, when you are projected there, just how normal and rational and, and ordinary it seems. I mean, think of the profound dreams that you have had. Uh, may, maybe uh, a chorus was singing in the background, a song you've never heard, but here in your dream world, lyrics, new music, everything comes to you. And, and you talk to people and you meet people and you visit with people just in a very ordinary way. It's not a dream where the monster's chasing you. It's a dream that is almost inane in this ordinariness. But yet, when you awaken, you think, that was so profound. I really felt I was in another world. Well, how often do we do it? What are dreams? You know, the so-called primitive people believe that in dreams, you know, you travel to that place. Well, do we really? I mean, do we travel to different dimensions? And then there have been some marvelous works of uh, creativity down through the ages of people who had double lives, one life here on Earth and one life uh, in another projection or dimension. And I've interviewed so many people who have gone, and it's happened to me, where you arrive at a place you've never been and everyone seems to know you. Now, okay, if you're on television a lot, you can explain that. But surely back in the 60s, you know, when there weren't programs, there weren't interviews, there weren't nice people like you interviewing those of us who were writing and creating in this field. There just weren't. Uh, there were very few radio programs, and most of them were hostile toward you. Most of them were very negative and, and wanting to ridicule you. You really had to dig in your feet. So why do you check into a hotel and find that you've already been registered? Why do you travel or be walking down a street and the telephone rings and rings, and for some reason you pick it up and it's for you? I mean, are we dreaming when this happens? I don't think so because I, you know, I wasn't run over by anything. But when these things happen to you and they become so inexplicable, you think, you know, what is what is reality? When is it reality? And when you and how many people do you meet on the street who really are there from another reality, another dimension? I mean, I've I've seen people walking in the street in Times Square, and then when I was doing a lot of promotion, and the next day I saw them walking in the street in Los Angeles. Now, okay, maybe people just looked alike, but there were certain things indicated and shown me, shown me as proof that I was seeing the same person. So all these things happen, and you think you have to sit back, you have to, you have to have a very ordinary life, <laughs> as Sherry and I tried to do, to balance the remarkable things that have happened to us all of our lives. And you both share that. Both of you have had those remarkable things. Yes, yes. We, we were talking till um, 9 o'clock this morning. <laughs> we just suddenly, and I won't reveal what this is, <clears throat> but we just suddenly had a wang. You know, we saw and interacted with a certain set of individuals at different times, at different facets of, of history and reality, and we didn't know each other then, and what was happening, and now, 20-some years later, we're sitting, and suddenly, just before we are trying to go to bed, we say, it all hits us. We saw this from different phases. And we couldn't stop talking about it. Sherry telling her interaction, I telling mine, and why didn't we? Now we've we've you know we're going on thirty years of marriage. Why didn't we think of that before? I mean, these things happen; they're given to us at a certain time. These aha moments, as Sherry calls them, this aha, and then we start and we realize, you know, it's in the book. I tell, and I've gone over this, Mike, I've gone over it a thousand times, and it plays the same way. We were brought together by, we have to say, angelic or some being. And that, you know, as often as I examine it, that's the way it came down. You know, a stranger comes up to me and brings me greetings from Sherry Hansen, <laughs> whom I had met briefly once before. 
And I said, really? Yes, we take a class together. Give her a call. She said when I saw you, to give you her love and say, to and I thought, I haven't seen this woman but briefly once before, and now this person is saying, call her. And <laughs> years later, after we were together, after we were married, we see this lady again in a Chinese, second story Chinese restaurant in New York City. And she's sitting with a man who's a double of Steve Martin. And I'm thinking all these years, I thought this lady must have been a friend of Sherry's and kind of urged us together. I see now that they've never seen each other. They've never met each other before. So this lady, we call her now our fairy godmother, she really served as the agent that brought us together. Now, that was, again, an outside external intelligence bringing two people who were supposed to be together, who were supposed to combine their research, supposed to combine their philosophies, supposed to combine everything that they're about and their mission on Earth. We were brought together by this intelligence that took over this woman who was also a stranger to me and made her speak and brought us together. So when this is the, I want to ask some questions. So this woman in the Chinese restaurant that had, that had uh, told you to call Sherry, Mm -hmm. did she remember telling you to call Sherry? No. Did she remember Um, being in the room or like the same, was she there at the same time? Okay. uh, I should just explain just, just a little bit. I don't want to take too much time with this, but Uh, Okay, how the lady, a friend asked me to attend a lecture that he was sponsoring. This was in Phoenix. And I wasn't too interested, but he prevailed on me, and I told him, no, I'm sorry. Then at the last minute, because he was a really good friend, the last minute I decided to go to this lecture, he had a place for me in the front row. A lady came in and sat down beside me. I'd never seen before. And she said, are you Brad Steiger? And I said, yes. And then she says, oh, I bring you greetings from, <laughs> I mean, just like, you know, out of, the, out of the blue, just a lady. I bring you greetings from Sherry Hansen. I said, is she here in Phoenix? I just met her once when she was on her way to uh, London. And she says, yes, she's here. We take a class together. And she said, when I saw you tonight, I was to give you her love and tell you to call her sometime. Now, how, it didn't occur to me then, but how, since I decided last minute to attend the lecture, how would this woman and how would Sherry, if she indeed were in Phoenix at the time, how would she know I'm going to be at the lecture to give me this message? So that was, and that didn't even dawn on me for, for several weeks. And then I called Sherry and I found out there was Reverend Sherry Hansen. And I called and, and it took me two weeks, really two weeks to get up the nerve to call. And then as they say, the rest is, is history. We became partners. We worked together. Uh, she edited uh, a couple of my books, and it was a working relationship, which, you know, I praise God every day, led to a deeper relationship. Now, okay, what I'm impressed with is that when you saw this woman in the Chinese restaurant, she had was sitting next to her with someone who was identical, a double, a doppelganger. <laughs> yeah of a comedian. So, so to me, that just says like, there's like that, that little detail to me adds a depth and richness to this whole story that, that almost, that makes it more playful than mysterious. Let me put it that way. Yes. And only someone of your intelligence and sensitivity picked up on that because I usually don't mention that aspect. He looked so much like Steve Martin that he was bothered. Sometimes, like he said, one time there was a convention going on and they cheered for Steve Martin's out in the hall. Please come in. And he couldn't get away from them. So several times he's mentioned he's become Steve Martin, you know, just to stop people from from bugging him. But there again, a comedian, knowing for being a wild and crazy guy, is sitting with her. Now, 
Only oh, someone that. of your only someone of your perception would pick up on that. Oh, I love this kind of stuff. I love this. I mean, there's something very seductive by all these little mysterious clues and such. Hey, um, the book. These two books, which I'm sitting side by side here, which is a werewolf one in the middle that, that, I, uh, that I have somewhere on a shelf. <laughs> yeah. But right between these two came a werewolf uh, creature book, right? And, uh, well, it was, it was actually first, and then that's the second edition. Of okay, it. I'm sorry. Okay, so, But they, yeah. they all sit together on the shelf very nicely. So there's like you know, you. well over a thousand pages of... of, uh, of At least. <laughs> yeah, all together. And they kind of have the same, they, the same formatting and the same... So Now... There's a lot of stories in this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, so, I mean, you had to collect all those stories. Yes. How many of those ar- stories arrived synchronistically? Well, you will understand when I say this. And it's not a boast. It's not a claim. It's just stating the facts. Our entire life <laughs> seems to be synchronistic. Everything seems to happen in synchronicity with us. I mean, it, uh, we just no longer look at each Well, now we just look at each other and smile. We used to say, wow, it's happening again. We, we no longer do that. We are in looking, questing for particular stories that will illustrate a particular point. And then we click on the email the very next day, and there are three or four of them people saying, say, can you help me with this? Or, gee, I just feel compelled to share this with you. So again, we think it's the great cloud, the great mystical, whatever you want to call it, the cosmic net that snares these things for us and brings them to us. Ah, this is so. Uh, so presently, I'm working on a book project. I'm I'm not much of a writer, so I write very slow. I'm very methodical about the way I go about it. But so the premise is, is that I've seen a a pattern where UFO abductees seem to have really interesting stories about owls, and so I'm collecting right. these stories of you know UFOs and owls, and and like I'm not doing anything. Like they're just arriving in my lap. Like I, and then they'll arrive in like little clusters. I'll get a whole bunch of owl stories that relate to crop circles in England. Just mm-hmm. like three. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll all blend together. They'll make the perfect little chapter with uh, the strangest connections. So these things are happening. What it's, what it's forcing me to do, or it's allowing me to do, it's, it's allowing me to um, release the doubts I have. You know, I think any creative process, you're going to be in the middle of a project, and you're going to be like second-guessing yourself and wondering, and like, oh, God, no, I have these doubts about the project. I, okay. I am beyond that. I've released the doubts about this project. I trust it Good. because of the synchronicities. Good. Good. Hey, here's a question I have always wanted to ask you. Okay. Have you ever filled out the Steiger questionnaire? Well, I I created it. So. Well, I mean, yeah, so, yeah. but you've never actually sat down and filled it out yourself. Well, you know, of course I have. I I do it in my mind every time I I read someone, and uh, for some reason, well, I I don't know. I've heard from a number of um, professors in Spain and Colombia and so forth who said that as Little boys, they read Strangers from the Skies in 67. And now they're professors at uh, different universities in, uh, and are uh, maybe they're mentioning it in class or whatever because we're getting an extraordinary number from uh, the Spanish-speaking countries. Fascinating, fascinating. Now, uh, now obviously this questionnaire, it's not like you... you tabulate something and, and win a prize or like he doesn't you no, know, tabulate no, and it no. doesn't say like you know you are a, you know an ufo abductee it doesn't come across like that no thank you for mentioning that because I, it has found its way no surprise in this um, internet generation to several uh, websites i guess we should say and obviously people are being misled that they'll get a certificate <laughs> our person. No, I'm, I'm serious. Okay. And we have we have to explain, you know, that this is a research project, and we welcome people participating in our research. But you know, there are no prizes, there are no certificates or diplomas to go with it. One of the questions, uh, and this is this is a little bit 
based on my own uh, personality here. Uh, uh, this is one of the questions I ask people, and it's not the direct quote um, in, in your thing. So you asked this question in the, uh, uh, the, the questionnaire. Um, mm-hmm. It's a little shortened version of it, and I'm going to ask you this question. What is mm-hmm. your sense of mission? Like your personal <laughs> sense of mission. How would you, would, like on a scale of 1 to 10, what would you give it? Uh, 10. I mean, this, this to me is the most important, and it's, it's something I've had all my life. And is extremely important. And um, you know, each night we pray. You know, keep us keep us firm in our mission, because we both feel and we look through our lives all the times. You know, we've flirted with death or had near death experience, and and all the things that have occurred to us. And and I, I think, and and I read this somewhere that people who feel from childhood that they have a mission are um, happier, more centered people. And I think that's true. And uh, I've had this sense of mission ever since, since I can remember. I mean, this is what I've always felt I was here to do. Uh, being <laughs> reared in a haunted house, I suppose we would say, it was, had been the old stagecoach stop. And, um, I mean, up through, through high school, you know, we would, uh, hear footsteps and voices and see shadowy figures and, uh, almost uh, maybe once a week, we would hear the sound of, uh, of horses drawing, uh, a coach or whatever you want to say. I hate to say stage coach, but at least it was horses drawing something. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm old enough so that, you know, I remember farming with horses. I remember our first tractor. So, you know, this is, when I was a small boy, this had obviously been the stage show stop because it had a creek running right by, you know, the, the front of the house. And, and the house itself had been torn down. It wasn't the exact stage go stop, but it had been torn down and built with the same wood. So my sister and I feel were insomniacs because we were awakened so often as children by uh, people. And we didn't know period dress at the time, but I mean, people in clothing of probably the 1880s or 1890s would be walking through our, our bedroom. And then that's uh, where I saw the elf when I was five years old. And in a sense, that elf has, has never left me. I mean, he visits from time to time, does a little mischief just to let him know he's still keeping an eye on me. And I guess part of my mission is I've resolved that I would see him again face to face. I've only seen his evidence. I've only seen the clues he leaves since. But I know someday I'm going to see him again face to face. So uh, all these things reinforce the sense of mission. And then my near-death experience at age 11 uh, certainly reinforced it and uh, showed me that uh, though I am not in any hurry to replicate the experience, that it doesn't hurt to die. And there is another dimension which one enters. As I say, I'm in no hurry to replicate the experience. But at that time, you know, I, I, even though I was, uh, I, I was reared in an evangelistic Christian home, so I should have, by rights, seen Jesus or an angel. But what I saw was an incredible array of geometric designs. And I would ask questions and a design would appear that somehow spoke to me and gave me the answer, put me at peace. First thing I asked is, I don't want to die. (laughs) And it says, you're not going to die, but if you did, young man, the world would go on without you. <laughs> you know? So again, very realistic advice. Now, when I, and, and I can still see those now, Mike, and this will sound egotistical, but I knew then, I knew everything 
Now, I can't repeat it. I don't know everything now. I'm not making any extravagant claims, but in that dimension, everything was clear. The divine plan, the world's purpose, what we are evolving towards. So that reinforced my sense of mission, but I just had this vague, you know, interpretation now. And it wasn't until Sherry, um, I knew she, she had always discussed her obsession a divine obsession with sacred geometry. And it wasn't until she uh, began corresponding with the university and getting slides of fractal geometry that I saw as close as I can describe to what I saw on the other side and that answered all my questions and reinforced my sense of mission. And when she gave healing seminars it was, and I hate to, uh, we're not making any claims now, but the number of healings that came out of her workshops of people focusing on fractal geometry and certain music which she would play, and then, of course, her remarkable healing voice, which is in itself, believe me, a healing mechanism. Remarkable healings were produced. Now, we don't do that anymore. But, you know, we have devoted ourselves now to writing, to sharing our experiences, and hoping to direct others in the direction. We, we don't go out and lecture anymore. We concentrate. We feel, uh, I'll be 78 in a month, and I feel I just want to concentrate with Sherry's help on getting certain works out that I feel I must to fulfill my mission. Wow. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. I, I, this is a, this, I, I apologize if this question seems mundane after that, because that was, that was really amazing. I've talked with, this is, goes back to some of the, 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 the book here. Um, I've personally talked to a lot of people with UFO contact mm-hmm. and they will, it's close to 100%. will talk about their interactions with the UFO occupants the actual interactions, like you know, people who are on board ship when they tell those stories, they right. will say it is not taking place in this reality. They'll mm-hmm. they'll mm-hmm. all have to describe something. Um, they'll say it's dreamlike, but it's not a dream. They'll say right. it's hyper vivid in a way that that doesn't match reality. What is your sense? Is what what is happening? Well, as we've described, uh, I think it is other dimensional, and. The early writers, not to fault them, but we were so nuts and bolts in those early days. I don't think they were picking up on, and they felt it would diminish to say that this was taking place as in a dream, as in a vision, because that's very much really what it has to be. Because when we talk to them, you know, the... It, it really is visionary. It's the same experience that holy people and visionaries, we're talking, Mike, we are talking about, as William James said, these are the mystical experiences of the individual. When it comes to religion, James said, all ecclesiasticisms, all dogmas, are secondary growths. The essence of our religions, the essence of our reality deals with the individual mystical experience and that's whether it's going on board, that's the same as going to other dimension. I first, you know, began to get skeptical because, you know, having taught world literature, having taught uh, history, and people would begin to describe what sounded very much like Jonathan Swift's Governor's Travels. They would be taken on board, and they wouldn't just meet some uh, grunt on the ship. They would meet the leader of the planet. They would meet the general of the invasion, whatever. And this, you know, and you're thinking, now, come on, you know, if you truly were snatched by an exploratory group, how do you get back to the planet that fast? And then you think of some of the 
stalwarts of science fiction who say, how do we travel through space? We don't travel through space, we avoid it. So then somehow we know that there is some reality that whether it's wormholes that are physical or whether they're psychic and metaphysical, we have an intelligence that somehow has managed to move back and forth through these realities. So we have to continually ask ourselves, you know, what is reality? Who am I really? What is my purpose? What is my mission? And how will I adapt my reality to fulfill my mission? Wonderful. Wonderful. Hey, we're getting on just uh, uh, up to an hour here, and i got one final question here. Okay. Uh, people... People come to my site. My site is not that popular. I really don't get that many hits compared to other paranormal sites out there. And that's fine with me because the people who come to, to my site, uh, I consider are the right people. I get a lot of feedback from the people who visit this site, and they are pretty clear that they're having experiences that would fall into exactly what we've been discussing for the last hour. Um, mm-hmm. And it has not been easy for some of these folks. It has been very challenging, and they've been coming to this oh, site. Indeed. Yeah. They've been coming to the site because in a lot of ways I have been uh, trying to articulate that challenge in in the way, you know, the sort of in, in what I've shared on the site and such. Now, what advice would you have for these people who are struggling with these experiences? May I read the first paragraph of our introduction in the book? You certainly may. And this is the way we regard everyone who contacts us. Those individuals who have encountered what they perceive as an extraterrestrial visitor, a ghost, an angel, an elfin creature, or a nightmarish monster, have never forgotten the experience. Their lives have never been the same. Their concept of reality has been forever expanded. Upon reflection, some may consider the encounter a life-altering experience, an illumination, an epiphany. But whether the account occurred to them a few months ago, a few years ago, or when they were very young children, they remember it as clearly as if no time at all has elapsed. Their experience remains with them in an eternal now. So these people always deserve respect. They are sharing an individual mystical experience that is with them and stands to them as an illumination, an encounter, but their life has been forever changed by this contact. And I will say, the def- and you say it right in there, the definition of reality is no longer the same. One definition collapses and another has to be rebuilt. Uh, Very true. Hey, um, this has been wonderful. You have, you, I feel really blessed and honored. The, the, I feel like I've heard a different side of you than I've heard on any other interviews. No. <laughs> I, I'm serious. Well, I'm good. serious. Yeah, good. you seem to, the, the, the uh, you, you have been very open with your role, I guess, and you've come across as much less of an author and much more of a mystic in this interview, and I, and I really recognize that. Well, thank you. I thank you. I guess um, that's kind of the way we defined ourselves last night when we finally <laughs> stopped our intense discussion and actually did go nighty-night, well, which it, was, I think, about 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> well, I got to say that, I mean, whatever whatever's going on is reverberating even now because I, I really sensed it in this in this hour. So, hey, thank you so much, and I look forward to someday meeting you, and I look forward to um, uh, hopefully talking to you again someday, um, hopefully when the next book comes out. Well, let's do that. Let's stay in touch, Sherry says, to give you her best. And uh, let's stay in touch, Mike. I like talking with you. Good. This would be delightful. I'm, I'm smitten by how this, this whole thing has, has gone down. This has been great. <laughs> well, I'm eager to see it. Okay, thank you. you. Okay, take care. Bye now. Bye.
fingers in the night Exchanging glances, wandering in the night What were the chances we'd be sharing love Before the night was through Something in your eyes was so inviting Something in your smile was so exciting Something in my heart told me I must have you the night two lonely people we were strangers in the night up to the moment when we said our first hello little did we know love was just a glance away a warm embracing dance away and ever since that night we've been together lovers at first sight in love forever it turned out so right for strangers in the night love was just a glance away a warm embracing dance away ever since that night we've been together lovers at first sight in love forever it turned out so right for strangers in the night do do Hi, this is Mike. I am chiming in after the editing and after Frank Sinatra. Uh, that song, Strangers in the Night, I stuck in there specifically because early on in the interview, Brad made a reference to his 1966 book, his first popular book, and the title of that book was Strangers from the Skies, and he made a little joke uh, that people used to, you know, sing it, sing the title as uh, Strangers in the Night. Now, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on any of the podcasts that I've done but I have seen Frank Sinatra three times, twice at Carnegie Hall and once at Radio City. And when I saw him at Radio City, he played with Sammy Davis Jr. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now. Wondering in the night, what were the chances we'd be sharing love before the night was through? Something in your eyes was so inviting, something in your smile was so exciting, something in my heart told me I must have you. in the night up to the moment when we said our first hello how little did we know love was just a glance away a warm embrace a dance away ever since that night we've been together lovers at first
I'm sorry, I couldn't resist doing that. That was James Brown doing Strangers in the Night. Now, if you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.